0: Welcome to the Operation Crest podcast. I'm Riley. And I'm Luke. And we are the co-host of today's episode. Operation Crest is an effort from the 957 Project to empower high school students like us to preserve memories of America's veterans and to share their stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Each of these interviews will be donated to the Library of Congress to be preserved for future generations. And you can hear other episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to stick around at the end of this episode to hear us reflect on what we learned during the following conversation. Learn more at www.operationcrest.org.
1: And now, let's begin the show. Today we are interviewing Chief Warrant Officer 4, Mike Cooper. Chief Warrant Officer 4, Mike Cooper, is a native of Pickery, North Carolina. Mike is the son of Deborah and Clifford Cooper. He followed in his father and grandfather's footsteps, enlisting in the Army on August 13, 1997, as an aircraft electrician. CW-4 Cooper's initial entry training included basic training, the aircraft electrician course, and airborne school. He was then assigned to 282 Aviation 82nd Airborne Division. He deployed with the 82nd to Afghanistan in 2002. In 2003, CW-4 Cooper reclassified to psychological operations, attended the special operation language training for Persian Farsi, and then assessed for the psychological operations ranger detachment. While in the ranger detachment, Mike served as a team leader and assistant detachment sergeant. He deployed twice with Ranger Regiment, once in 2004 and again in 2005. During this last deployment, Mike realized the impact he could have on mission success as a helicopter pilot. Shortly after returning from OEF in January 2006, Mike applied to warrant officer flight training. CW-4 Cooper graduated from warrant officer flight training at Fort Rucker, Alabama in 2008 as a UH-60A Alpha Lima pilot. He was assigned to the 4101-159 Combat Aviation Brigade at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where he qualified for the UH UH-60M. CW-4 Cooper deployed two more times with 4101 to Afghanistan in 2008-2009 and again in 2011-2012. He attended both the UH UH-60 Lima and UH UH-60M maintenance test pilot courses in 2012, as well as the Aviation Maintenance Officer course. Mr. Cooper was then assigned to 282 Aviation 82nd Airborne Division as a maintenance test pilot. He deployed again to Afghanistan in his role as an MTP. CW4 Cooper then served as an Aviation Warrant Officer Advanced Course Instructor on Fort Rucker. During his assignment, Mike taught over 1,200 Army aviators. Following that assignment, Mike was assigned as the Quality Assurance OIC in 2-2 Assault Helicopter Battalion in Seoul, South Korea. After his stint in South Korea, Mike was stationed in Fort Belvoir, Virginia, as the unit's aviation maintenance officer and senior MTP. Currently, CW4 Cooper serves as the senior warrant officer advisory to the battalion commander in 12th Aviation Battalion. In concert with working as an MTP, Mike perused his civilian education attaining an associate's degree from Fayetteville Technical Community College. CW4 Cooper's Warrant Officer Professional Military Education includes Warrant Officer Basic Course, Aviation Warrant Officer Advanced Course, and Warrant Officer Intermediate-Level Education. T.W. 4 Cooper has also attended Airborne Jumpmaster, U.S. Army Recruiter Course, the Mobile Force Protection Course, and U.S. Army Pathfinder. Mr. Cooper, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. So just to get things started off, it says in your bio that you were primarily inspired by your father and grandfather to join the military. So I was just wondering if there was any uh, tasks that they did or anything that they uh, sort of did that inspired you to join the military
2: yeah sure so uh you know growing up uh so my my grandfather uh on my mother's side he was in world war ii korea and vietnam and then uh you know my dad uh, met my mom while she was in uh they were uh, she was at fort benning and that's where my grandfather retired from and stuff and then so just being around that and then the travels you know my mom she got to grow up in uh you know uh, germany france okinawa and then so traveling and stuff. And then so growing up as a kid, you know, we would always go down to Fort Benning, Georgia and watch the fireworks and go see the the infantry museum. And my grandfather had donated some stuff from from his time overseas to the infantry museum that and you know and that stuff was there. And so you'd get kind of get to see see all that stuff just growing up and he just go, you know, that's just that's just kind of how it was, and, and that was kind of just the path for me.
0: So I'd have Just a question. Why did you pick the Army over the other branches of service?
2: Uh, Great question. Um, Pretty interesting uh, little backstory and stuff. I was actually taking uh, physics when I was a junior in high school, and then – so we had went into our uh nuclear um section of that so then they actually had some of the uh, navy nuclear guys come in you know talking about nuclear propulsion and how that works on the ships and and everything like that so i'd gotten interested into that first so talked to the navy recruiters and everything and and literally um as the navy recruiter is pulling into my house get a random random phone call hey this is sergeant hester united states army you know just want to sit down and talk with you And then I was like, yeah, sure. I was like, the Navy recruiter's pulling in right now. He's like, well, when do I get my turn? And I was like, well, how about Thursday? You know? And then, um, so sit down and talk with him, talk with the Marines and stuff. Obviously, you know, family, you know, uh, grandfather, father being in the Army, uncle being in the Air Force um, and everything. And then so just kind of waited out and, and actually took a lot of time. I think the ultimate decision uh, came down to what the Army would guarantee me uh, compared to the other uh, branches of service. Um, you know, I was taking um, I was also taking uh, electoral trades in high school, along with other stuff. i am got a pretty eclectic um, things that I enjoy. And then so uh, the army was the only one that was like, yeah, we can guarantee you this aircraft electrician job. Matter of fact, you know, if you want to go to jump school or want to do this, you know, we can we can make that happen, too. So when I was talking to the other branches, they were like, well, we can guarantee you a career management field. So it might be, you know, for the Marines, it was like we can get you into aviation. Right. But that could have been anywhere from aviation flight operations that could have been as a mechanic it could have been as an electrician it could have been the guy working on the aviation life support equipment and then saying you know with the navy um the the nuclear program was really interesting and and i really liked some of that aspect and and everything but um, then i started kind of taking a look at like ship life and i was like that's probably not for me so that that that's really kind of between the those couple of things and and some guarantees that that the army could offer that the other branches couldn't
1: yeah i i kind of resonate with you with you about that uh sea life i get seasick really easily i don't really like being on like a boat or anything all that much um i get sick super easily so i imagine that the army was probably the best choice for your future career as they basically guaranteed you a ton of stuff which is amazing um Anyways, I was just wondering what some of your boot camp or training experiences were like. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure, Uh,
2: super interesting. So I joined the army, my first day of basic training uh, was actually my 18th birthday. So I shipped to basic on August 13th. In the army, when you go to basic training, uh, at least when I went in 97, uh, you spent your first week or so in what they call reception. So that's when you get there and, and, that's when they shave your head and they issue you all your uniforms and they give you like, you know, the, the boots and the socks and the belts and the T-shirts and the, all your shots and make sure your medical is up to date and, and all that stuff. And then um, after you finish with all that in processing part of it, then you actually go to basic training itself. And that's where you get picked up by the drill sergeants and start the actual like, you know, training part of it um so august 18th was my first day actually in basic training and that's my 18th birthday so um real fun you know you get singled out a little bit you know it's like oh we got a birthday boy you know and then uh but it's fine you know you just do a few extra push-ups and stuff and you get a little bit of extra special attention uh and everything and then basic is just that it's basic i mean they're, they're teaching you how to you know how to march how to do dnc how to use the phonetic alphabet they're teaching you um you know first aid from like a tactical standpoint now we we've we've coined it as combat casualty care uh and everything but back then it was very different um they te- they're teaching you about nuclear biological and chemical operations so how to don your protective mask how to wear your chemical protective over garments um how to actually conduct patrolling how to conduct um you know security operations and, and things of that nature so all very like basic combat related stuff and then back then you know it was only eight weeks and then so it was a very uh intense uh eight weeks typical morning started getting up at four you're downstairs in formation ready to go doing pt at five o'clock pt gets over with however long that takes that day hour hour and a half come back um, change uniforms they take you to breakfast after that you're you're back doing whatever the the tasks are for that day whether if it's they're teaching you how to march if you're going to the rifle range they're teaching you march, marksmanship um if you're road marching out so road marching meaning with with all your gear and your rucksack and everything and then you're just walking to the range carrying your weapons and and everything like that and then uh same thing you you know either they get you a bus ride to bring you back um in in the evenings for evening chow uh eat and then uh normally there would be classroom stuff so more classes all the way up until about eight o'clock at night and then from eight o'clock to nine o'clock at night was your personal time and then so, you, you know, personal hygiene, write letters, um, you know, whatever you needed to do. And then nine o'clock was lights out.
0: Thank you. Uh, do you remember any of your uh, drill sergeants from basic?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have three. Uh, I had Drill Sergeant Vasquez, uh, Drill Sergeant Perez, and Drill Sergeant, we called her uh, PB but her real name was Perry Bowen um my drill sergeants both of them they were puerto ricans so they called themselves the caribbean connection and uh so uh awesome awesome dudes uh you know really um just really solid uh soldiers um very task condition uh standards um you know hey this is how it's, it's going to be done and great role models uh what was very interesting so you all said i went to recruiting school and then so i was in the very first class of corporals uh to become a recruiter in 1999 well my drill sergeants were still on the trail and so that's the term for when drill sergeants go out on drill sergeant duty right they they call that being on the trail and so my drill sergeants were still on the trail when i went there uh, back to fort jackson which is where i went to basic and went to recruiting school and then so the barracks that i stayed in um for recruiting school was literally about five buildings down from where I went to basic training. So I actually ran into my drill science and got to talk to them. And then, so you get to, uh, got to know them a little bit more on a personal level because at that time, you know, now I was a junior NCO, uh, and everything. And then, so they treat you like a person at that point and, and just trying to, um, you know, got to know them a little bit and they remembered me, uh, and everything, which was pretty awesome because you got to think those guys are seeing, you know a basic training platoon is uh probably 60 people um 45 or 60 i don't remember um you know and they see a brand new 60 people every two months you know for three years and then so here it was you know almost two years later when i was actually going through recruiting school and they're like hey i know you get over here you know and then uh and, and then so they're like, man, that's awesome. You know, that's, that's really high speed getting to do something like that. So um, very much stand out in my mind.
1: That's pretty cool. Um, so I was just wondering about some of your uh, personal experiences, uh, specifically about these uh, psychological operations. Could you tell us a bit about those and what those entailed?
2: Sure. So um, there's. In psychological operations there's there's a couple of different areas and and how that works and how it's broken down um so i did strictly what's called tactical psyop for uh ranger regiment so 75th ranger regiment is the the army's premier uh raid force and then so at the time we were this was in you know 2004 five and six so this is still pretty early on in the war uh the ranger regiment falling under joint special operations uh command jsoc um and there's a lot of tiers that go along with that and then so we were basically doing a lot of direct action stuff so it was a lot of um along the border uh of afghanistan high value targets um capture kill type operations uh, and everything. We didn't have uh, a lot of the force enablers or force multipliers that, that you see today. So some of those tactical human teams and uh, the FBI's HRT and then you know some other government agencies, we call those OGAs that would later on come on to, to do a lot of the work for us Um, back then the, a PSYOP guy like me and my team would be the ones who would do a lot of the stuff that Ranger, you know, the typical 11 Bravo Ranger regiment guy wouldn't do, right? Go in. Uh, so let's say we, we would, um, fly in, do the offset, do a movement to, to a target for a high value target, uh, do initial introduction of forces, um, or, As we're doing that, maybe I would sit in on a blocking position. Normally when you take a look at how that objective is is going to be ran, you take a look at um, most likely most dangerous courses of action, high speed avenues of approach. If if there's going to be a populated area in which we think that that area's population would come to uh, help that individual out of usually fear, um, or if they might want to interfere just out of sheer curiosity of what was going on, I would set up and make um, broadcasts uh, in that particular area. And I would do that in multiple languages. So I'd normally carry a couple of different sources of media with me. The MP3 player back then, we still use CD players, um, uh, the little... I had a couple of different flash drives and, and things like that. So I would make broadcasts in about five different languages. So, um, Farsi, Urdu, Pashto, and then there was a couple of other like very local specific dialects, depending on which Valley system that you were going into. And then, so you would do some introduction of forces. And then, so that would also, that changed the rules of engagement for what was going on. Right? So then now they can say, Hey, well, we didn't know what was going on. Once we would conduct that, And um, the objective was pretty much clear. I would go up and we would start doing uh, sensitive site exploitation. And then so there is, there's how you do that is very important, right? Because those intel gatherers and the intel analysts that are back on um, the FOB, they, they aren't out there with you. So they need to know if you pull something off of an objective, where did it come from? Which building did it come from which room did it come from where in the room was it and then so there's systems for being able to capture all that data so that way when we pull people off of the objective and they're talking to them then they, they they know because of where that person was then he should know or she should know actually we never pulled females off but that person should know um well hey you were in this building with this so you should be aware of what was in this room with you you know and then so we would do tactical questioning while we were there too right so just asking open-ended fact finding questions hey who lives over there who lives there who is that person just just trying to establish who they are who's in the village who's supposed to be there who's not supposed to be there um and stuff because uh you know they would get infiltrated you know taliban guys would be in there and uh sometimes there would be And this is very on with like Al-Qaeda or then some of the other um, terrorist organizations or criminal organizations uh, along the border that would infiltrate. And then, so you had a lot of stuff like that too that was coming from Pakistan into Afghanistan. So anytime you were operating in that, in that border region right there, you kind of had to find out who was who, who belonged there and who didn't. And you just do that through, through asking, you know, open-ended questions, right. And let people talk.
1: That's fascinating. Some other so, stuff like
2: that, too. I, you know, like I said, there's other parts to PSYOP. You know, so we, that's the tactical part of it, right? Then you go into some of the regional type stuff. So w- when we talk about psychological operations, it's not what people think. It's not what people think it is, right? So how do we get – how do we influence somebody to do something that we want them to do without necessarily shooting at them, right? How do I get them to – stop doing something? Or, 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 you know, who can I affect that? Hey, if, if we know that we have IEDs going off in, in a particular area, right? So then we need to identify, okay, well, who's setting off those IEDs? Why are they setting off those IEDs? Who are our centers of influence? Who are our key communicators that we can, you know, talk to or try to influence? Are they doing it because they legitimately don't like us being there? Are they doing it because that is the only way that they know how to make money are they doing it because you know hey the taliban has their you know brother daughter son cousin whatever and they're holding them hostage and making them do some of this stuff so you have to figure that out then you have areas that are off limits so like i said there's there's a lot of stuff going through pakistan right And then so how do you influence an audience that's in pakistan that you do not have access to so we started taking a look at some of the truck stops because that's where most of our supplies came through right so it came through karachi pakistan and it would get uh shipped over there and then it would come through the ports and then they would truck it from the ports through pakistan into afghanistan and then so the the truck drivers would have to stop at the border And they have to stay there for a couple of days well we didn't necessarily have access to be able to go into pakistan but the truck drivers do so you start talking to the truck drivers and find out hey what type of music do you listen to what type of media source do you have right so most of them were still rocking you know tape players and everything so then we would go back and we would make tapes right that had the type of music that they wanted to listen to whatever music was popular for them at the time all local type stuff and then there would be little commercials in there just like you hear commercials on the radio uh, right now and then so there would be a little commercial in there basically that we had created um you know talking about like hey you know maybe you know planning an IED isn't the the best thing for you and your family or or hey if you see something you know, with this type of stuff, we have this small rewards program and you can get, you know, some money for, you know, different types of weapons. If you can tell us where those weapons are at, things of that nature. So it's it's it gets pretty interesting.
0: Thank you. So we've had um, in other interviews we've conducted a lot of people um, stationed in South Korea. Is there a certain requirement for service there or is it voluntary? Is it they just send you?
2: No, they just sent me. Um, now, I will say the reason that they sent me was because of my skill set. Um, like mm-hmm. you guys said in that interview, um, I am a UH-60 MTP, and I do – so Alpha Limas are a variant of that aircraft, and then what's called the MIC, the MIC model, is another variant of that aircraft. And there are not many people in the Army that do, are maintenance test pilots in both variants of the aircraft at the same time. And then so the Korea, the 2-2, so the 2nd Assault Battalion of 2-ID, was getting the mic Model Blackhawk at the time. So uh, my branch manager was just like, hey, man, got to send you. There was somebody else was supposed to go. He can't go now because of medical reasons. It's just, you know, it's it's just your turn, you know. And then so went to went to Korea to a place called K-16 Seoul Air Base and then um, fielded the mic Models uh, for for that organization and it was really fortuitous uh i had a lot of friends there and it um, that i'd met along the way and stuff and we just all happened to be in the same unit at the same time so really a great experience uh you know i was apprehensive um at first as everybody is because everybody hears oh man korea you know it's so hard or it's this or you're away from your family and you know there's this that and the third but you are away from your family i was away from my family um but you can take your family over there and stuff i just didn't um my wife was here we're dual military so she is a uh, fixed wing pilot so she flies the c12s and uc35s and then so she was here at fort Belvoir while i went and did that for I, I got the extended tour so i got about 16 months because of uh covid restrictions and everything like that but great opportunity really enjoyed uh traveling around getting to see their museums got to go up on the dmz uh, so the that demilitarized demilitarized zone there between yeah the,
1: the line between the two countries
2: yeah and so that's where you see like all the photos of like the blue buildings and yeah. and everything like that so got to go see that stuff I actually had summer my wife uh, she came over to Korea for a couple of weeks in the fall and got to go exploring some of that stuff with her and it, it was just a great it was it was a great time it was a good opportunity we we actually really enjoyed it
1: That's very interesting. I was just wondering how long you were stationed in Korea because it seems as though being stationed in Korea, basically like across the ocean away from home seems very difficult for all servicemen and women because you're just away from your family so long in a very, uh, uh, you know, contentious area between two nations who just don't really like each other all that much.
2: Yeah. So for me, uh, I got, I got the extended tour. Like I said, I think I was there 15 or 16 months. Normally it's only 12 if you go by yourself if you take your family which is entirely possible um you're usually there for two to three years so um depending on where you go in korea but because i was so far north i was just there um what's called an unaccompanied or a hardship tour um but it worked out pretty well because um the the time difference and everything so especially now with uh um you know, just media and technology being what it is, like, we could FaceTime, we, so we would FaceTime really quick in the morning when I was getting up, and she was going to bed, and then when I was going to bed, and she was getting up and going to work, so, you know, a couple of minutes twice a day, um, just getting to talk and say hi, and catch up on what's going on, and talk about our day, and share our experiences, uh, and everything, so, um, Well, yeah, I mean, it can be a little bit trying, you know, because you're you're not there with your wife or your husband or, you know, and your kids and stuff like that. But we just made the best of it. Um, And we knew, like, it it sounds like a long time, you know, but in the grand scheme of things, like a year just really isn't that long. You know, 15 months really isn't that long. Um, We were deploying. So before I met my wife, um, you know, early on in the the Army, you know, I deployed a lot. And then so a lot of our deployments were a year. And then so you would deploy for a year and then you'd come home for a year and then you'd deploy again for another year when the war was really um, hot and heavy when we were doing both Afghanistan and, and Iraq.
0: So what was your transition um, to warrant officer and being a pilot like?
2: Very interesting. Um, I, like I said, I've got a very eclectic uh, background and and story. And then so I'll tell you the story about how I how I got into it. And then I'll tell you a little bit about candidate school and stuff if you guys have the time. Mm -hmm. So being in psychological operations, um, doing what I was doing at the time, working for Ranger Regiment, I had a what's called a top secret uh, SCI uh, clearance. And I had a language of Persian Farsi um so Persian Farsi is basically what they speak in Iran now in Afghanistan they speak Dari which is a dialect of Persian Farsi um so when I was over there and and we were running all those operations with with the Ranger Regiment and everything I also worked for a bunch of other organizations that were over there that fall under the that JSOC you know uh special operations command uh under what they call that JSOC umbrella and then so I got recruited to go to another organization we call them special mission units um and then uh, the army decided to not let me go to that organization uh, for one reason or another they said hey you know you guys are the only one doing the psyop support that you're doing you're the only ones vetted to do that stuff and then so we really don't want to lose you to to that right because you're just too valuable for us uh another friend of mine um he, he was trying to go do something else and and everything. And then he's like, heck with it, man, let's go be pilots. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's go be pilots. Mind you, I had already been an aircraft electrician, right? So I had already been in an aviation unit and stuff. And I was like, man, that sounds like, well, if they're not going to let me do this, let me go back to aviation. That was a lot of, you know, had a lot of fun, smart dudes, hard workers, uh, and everything. Um, and it was just like, yeah, let's go do that and got picked up and it's like, well, what are we going to do now? <laughs> I guess we're going to go be pilots, man. You know? And then, um, so, and then that transition is pretty interesting, you know, so I'd been in the army for about nine years at that point. Um, when I went to uh, candidate school. Uh, so I went in 2006 and like I said, I joined in 1997. So i have been, an, uh, an NCO for quite a while. Uh, and then, so you're going into candidate school and you're, you're in there with a bunch of other, um, NCOs that are now transitioning over to become warrant officers uh, and everything and then they put you in a pretty constrained environment right and then so um, very exacting very attention to detail oriented uh, and everything right and so that takes some getting used to you know you got some guys that they've been in the army for a long time and they're on the top rung of whatever they do and now they're being put back in with other people who, who are also very type a type people. And then, so there's some conflicts and, and stuff in there. And then your, um, you know, your, what's called the tax, um, you know, they're, they're trying to simulate pressure, um, you know, hey, give, give you very hard, uh, very detailed, very minutia oriented stuff, and then not giving you a whole lot of time to do it, you know, just to see how you prioritize, how you time manage uh, and everything. So, but you get through it. I mean, you know, it's, it's like everything else, this too shall pass and uh you get through it and then one day you graduate and and it's just off to the next thing
1: that's great so this is a podcast that seeks stories of courage resilience service and teamwork do you have any stories that relate to those themes that you would like to share
2: oh man there there are so many um just especially like in in multiple multiple parts of of you know my career being in psychological operations doing the hard thing being a one-off type what we call mos and and going out with the guys and and so there you know there were times that Operation winter strike you know and and they said you know hey pack warm pack light we're going to be out for three days and you know 54 days later is when when the boys came back in and then so You know, you're just out there and and you're walking through some of the hardest terrain uh, in Afghanistan, mountains that are just up both sides of the other. Just, you know, every day, every step is a struggle. But it's the guys that you have around you, the people that you have around you that you just keep doing that stuff for, you know, Um, being in aviation, you know, just the some of the courage and the commitment that you see from guys and and the things that people do um you know they they routinely guys would get in firefights we you know maybe it might have been in the zari district center or you know whatever and then so they're they're trying to put these uh combat outposts into these very contentious environments and stuff and and they're like hey we need you to go we got a, a unit they're they're black on ammo they're black on water we need you to go do a, a speedball and that's so what a speedball is is they just load up body bags with uh ammo and water and food and then so you you take your aircraft in there uh in the middle of the them fighting it out and stuff just to keep the boys resupplied um you know we, we had some pretty pretty tough times in um out west um i was doing a lot of medevac uh, chase operations out there when the marines made their big push into marja and then so you're constantly i mean you're flying seven eight hours a day um and night while you know doing medevac operations and every one of those operations you're pulling out injured marines you know uh, or or local civilians Uh, i was there when we in afghanistan and my 1112 deployment we lost our whole team of pathfinders um so guys that that i'd known that i'd worked with for for a couple of years uh and everything went out on an operation we were pulling out um just literally tons of drugs and uh and homemade explosives um out of the southern uh, registan desert uh, in afghanistan and they went into um uh, they went to, to pull a, um, a uh, there was a trailer that had been there for a couple of days that we went to go action on. And then uh, when they went to do it, it was booby trapped. And then the, um, around around that trailer was was booby trapped with daisy chained mines and stuff too. So we lost an entire Pathfinder team, a couple of EOD guys, and the, some of the Afghan uh, National Army guys and stuff. And then so, but, you know, and those are your friends that, that go and do that sort of stuff, man. And then just the, the resilience of the rest of the Pathfinders to go back Mm -hmm. and go back the next day to the same area to make sure that the stuff that we started, the, the, to get rid of all the, the drugs and the homemade explosives and everything, because those explosives were going to end up in an IED. They were going to kill another US service member or another coalition force service member. Um, so you've, you've got to do something about that uh, and everything. And then, so just the resiliency of the guys to go back and do that again, You know, to get back in the aircraft, to go back into harm's way. And then, like I said, we were deploying You know, for a year, we'd come home for a year, you'd have to train up and go through it all again, and then you'd go deploy again. And it was a lot of the same guys you know over and over again that we're deploying and signing up for another one you know so just the the resiliency that that takes to know what you're getting into to know what what is uh what what you're about to have to do and to kind of and to sign up and get to and to have to go do that over and over again
1: thank you yeah thank you thank you for sharing that it's um it's very impactful
0: so do you have any um stories of camaraderie or anything like that
2: oh yeah i mean tons (laughs) i mean god dang like some of this stuff guys it's so hard to explain you can be in some of like just horrible conditions and have some of the best times like you've ever had like and some things will be so funny it's absolutely hilarious uh some of the things that will happen to you um you know, I had this one soldier of mine, his name was Gunlock. So everybody calls him Gunny. And then, but he was one of those scroungers. I'm talking like classic movie, you know, scrounger. You could ask him for absolutely anything and he could get it too. Gunny comes in uh, one night and he's carrying uh, a refrigerator, like one of the small, you know, refrigerators that you would have in your room or something. You're like, Gunny, where'd you get that? Over there. Over there, <laughs> over there by that fence was it on this side of the fence or the other side of the fence gunning oh sorry you don't want to ask me stuff you don't want to know about <laughs> you know and then uh and then you're like well get in here man for somebody sees you you know or uh same thing we'd been out same gun lock we'd been out for uh a couple of days and stuff. We we'd gotten back uh, on the bagram and everything because at that point we were working for the joint strike force, and uh, you know we were pretty hungry. And it was I don't know one two o'clock in the morning. Midnight chow was, was already over with and stuff. And then so we had these little trucks called Hiluxes, and you, you could you'd have to take it out of the compound and go all the way around. And then so uh, he's like, "I'm hungry. Come on." And I was like, right, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Let's go. I got a friend." Gunny always had a friend you know and then so we go out of the compound drive around and then so the the chow halls when you're when we were deployed at that time these were big operations at that point you know because uh you're talking about thousands of people going through these chow halls so these freezers are huge that have all the food in them and stuff we just pull up to to the uh one of the freezers these huge walk-in freezers and stuff and gunny starts to just throw in You know, like these Red Baron pizza boxes at me and stuff like that, you know, and then, so the defect manager comes out and now mind you, we're not in, in uniforms at this point because we had relaxed grooming standards. So we're, we're kind of in, you know, t-shirts and, and some, you know, cargo pants and have a beard and, and everything and uh gunlock he could grow a beard overnight i mean he just had this amazing you know beard and stuff like that and so but the defect manager comes out and he's like hey what are you doing and goes like we hungry and he's as he's throwing me a box of pizzas and stuff to throw in the truck and the defect manager's like all right man just let me know what you take fellas you know <laughs> and uh but you know awesome awesome dudes and uh some of my best friends you know the guy that that um that I switched over to, to aviation with and, and he and I talked, you know, he was in first Ranger battalion when I deployed with them, uh, and everything. And then we're still friends. He ended up being, uh, so we, we met during that rotation through another friend of mine. He ended up being the best man at my wedding, um, uh, and everything. And then, uh, we still talk, we, we're still friends uh, and everything. And just some of the, some of the best people, um, that you meet people that I still, You know keep in contact with years later and stuff so just absolutely had some of the best times um you know just shared suffering
1: creates camaraderie you know Um, yeah that's truly wonderful so i was wondering if you had any advice that you'd give to young people listening to this interview absolutely
2: um don't self-select and what i mean by that is um make somebody else tell you no don't not do something because you don't think you can do it or because you've put it on such a pedestal that it it becomes like this unattainable thing right so don't self-select don't tell yourself that you can't do something right even if it seems like the most wazoo thing in the world try Make somebody else tell you no, you know? Because guess what? If it was impossible, nobody could do it. You're trying to do something that other people have done. And if somebody else can do it, you can do it. It just takes time, right? It takes perseverance. And if you if you don't get it, that just means you're not ready yet. It, just, it doesn't mean that you're not ready or you can't do it. It just means that you're not ready yet. So you just keep training, you know? Whatever it is, whatever your weakness is, whatever that you didn't get through or or whatever your sticking point was, work on it and then go back and do it again and then do it again and do it again until eventually you'll get there.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us. So I think we're just about ready to wrap up here. I was just wondering if there was anything else you'd like to share with us before we complete this interview
2: just wanted to say thanks for the opportunity, guys.
1: Uh, this has really been, been awesome. I know we've been,
2: you know, kind of going back and forth, trying to get the dates uh, and everything. Truly appreciate the opportunity. Um, really like what you guys are doing. Um, if there's anything that I can do or help out with, um, you know, like guys want to talk about, you know, becoming a, a, a pilot, you know, because the Army has the Warrant <laughs> Officer Flight Training Program. You can, you can absolutely go street to seat that's what we call street to seat. you can i actually just had a guy uh he sent me his coin and his letter from when he graduated uh warrant officer candidate school a few weeks ago who was in high school last year so that is a, that is a possibility you can absolutely go from high school to the warrant officer flight uh, training program uh, and fly helicopters for the army uh, and it, it is a hugely hard but rewarding experience and then so you were with some of the best aviators in the world. And then just, man, these guys, it is great to get to go work with people that are that smart and that dedicated um, and just have that kind of ability. And it's every day where you're like, man, I just, man, I hope they don't find out that I'm not up to their caliber. You know, and you just, you you keep working and you just, until somebody else is like, man, I'm just trying to be like you. And you're like, bro, don't try to be like me. You know, I'm trying to be like this other dude over here, you know? Uh. uh, So anything like that, guys, uh, you know, feel free to absolutely reach out if you want to talk about flying, if you want to talk about some of the other special operations type stuff, Um, anything army related. Like I said, I've had a very eclectic career and I've done a lot uh, and everything. So got a pretty good background, so anything you guys want, just give me a holler.
0: Awesome, thank you. thank
1: you so much. I'm,
0: I'm a big flying guy, so.
1: Yeah, I can tell you a lot about flying. Well, yeah, he, he's Riley, so. I, I, I'm i working towards hopefully becoming a
0: pilot.
2: Okay, so you already got like your PPL and.
0: and I'm working like. on my PPL, yeah.
2: Okay. Flying uh, Cessnas, like 172s? Or?
0: Well, that's a Skyhawk
2: okay <laughs> cool uh nice i don't do the the fixed wing stuff so much my wife you know does and and so she flies the the c12s and the jets and, and everything but as far as like helicopters go like i'm your guy you know Thank so, you. but between the two of us there's there's not a whole lot that that we can't uh we can't talk about and i, I tell people you know my wife is the real aviation nerd i'm just yeah. the one that's stupid to quit you know that's been the theme of my whole career like man just just knuckle down and and put one foot in front of the other and eventually whatever's kicking your butt stops and you come out on the other side and you're all the better for it
1: yeah Yeah, that's great well thank you so much so much for joining us today and uh sharing everything that you had to say we greatly appreciate it hey thanks guys i appreciate the opportunity Wow, what a great interview. I can't believe we got to talk with someone who has such incredible experience, such as CW4 Cooper. What did you think? I thought
0: that the stories that he had were really interesting, especially the uh, the flying stuff. I'm a big aviation nerd, so that stuff's always, it's really cool for me to, to speak with people who fly helicopters or airplanes or whatever it may be.
1: Yeah, it's pretty awesome that he was he went into detail about the uh, Mike and then the Alpha Lima, Um, variants of the helicopters or other aircraft that he's flied and also that he got to actually, you know, teach multiple different aviators. We didn't really talk about that in the interview, but it was nice to uh, know a little bit of background about that. Um, I think his psychological operations specifically where he goes into, uh, you know, hostile territory and tries to influence the local population, like, you know, Farsi and other local dialects. Mm -hmm. I just found that like just absolutely fascinating. I, I assume that like psychological operations have become far more important in modern warfare so that was very interesting for him to talk to us about that. Yeah I thought that the psyops was, was really cool because
0: you know he said that they would get CDs or whatever in broadcast messages or whatever or even yeah. what he said with the truck drivers um, and asking them what kind of music they listened to and how he would they would put commercials in there um, for that Yeah, it, stuff to try and prevent stuff from happening
1: yeah a lot more goes into psychological operations than i thought it originally entailed it's not simply just influencing or like having power over someone it's there's a lot more strategy behind it because you gotta be very careful with what you say and how you organize stuff to make it seem convincing or try to convince other people to do what you want them to
0: yeah and Um, then i thought that um as far as the main things that we we look for what the acronym for this podcast starts crest um with with resilience i thought that the hiking through the mountains and and all that stuff i thought that was really interesting how they you know they've been told they were going to be out three days and they ended up being gone more than 50 i thought that was you know a a real story of resiliency
1: yeah that's like the highest form of resilience i don't think i could ever do that i think my legs would probably give out by the time i reached day eight maybe i that's just overshooting it i think um going back to the acronym i think mine may my main takeaway related to courage and about you know diffusing the bomb how like an entire squad had you know sadly uh passed away and then you have these men throwing their lives on the line to go and diffuse these bombs or diffuse these like, you know, drugs or IEDs, so that um, other servicemen don't have to die. I just found that to be very uh, courageous and uh, incredibly admirable.
0: Yeah, and as, as far as teamwork goes, I think that um, what he referred to as, as a speedball, when they drop the um, supplies down from the helicopters, just drop it and while they're fighting, I think that that's an amazing way that, you know, that air and, and ground can kind of work together you know, create. Yeah, definitely. Whatever they need
1: to. Yeah, definitely. So what'd you think about his uh, advice on not self-selecting? Like having someone else tell you, tell you, um, basically say, okay, don't doubt yourself until someone says that what you're doing is wrong. Like, what yeah. do you think about that? I, I thought that was, you know, really, inspiring.
0: because, you know, basically do it until someone tells you
1: you can't. And then, work for it yeah because you don't know what you're physically or mentally capable of until you actually try or until somebody recognizes what you're able to do you know he said
0: if someone else is doing it and you want to do that you think it's some kind of unattainable thing at first and then you realize you work for it you work for it you work for it and that um eventually you become that guy that someone thinks has an an unattainable role or whatever um and i i think
1: i think that's really really cool yeah that is is pretty cool like once you if you keep telling yourself that something is impossible then you're never going to be able you might live your life just procrastinating or not trying that specific thing just because you think it's out of reach but when in reality you just need like a little bit of push a little bit of support and you can achieve anything yeah so I thought it was it was really good advice
0: because you know there's a lot in this world that we we look up to and we're like oh that's you know unattainable or whatever and you look at that and that's that's another human being doing that which I think once you realize that it it inspires you to to put in the work and and start start trying that
1: yeah I know it sort of sounds cliche but it's what um cw4 cooper here is isn't exactly saying that nothing is impossible it's just it's that a, the things that you normally think are impossible are normally are normally possible. possible because you know someone else is doing it exactly yeah.
0: thanks for listening to the operation crest podcast If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and share. Today's hosts were Luke and me, and our guest was Chief Warrant Officer 4, Mike Cooper. The questions were written by us, and the editing was done by our teachers. Until next time, see ya.